Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. In this episode of In the Foreground, I speak with Svetlana Alpers, a specialist of 17th century painting and professor emerita at the University of California, Berkeley. In our conversation, Svetlana shares how literary criticism influenced her early encounters with art, and she reflects on the altered state of the discipline today. We discuss the relationship between painting and photography in light of her new book on Walker Evans, and Svetlana recounts parallels between this new project and her seminal work on Dutch painting, The Art of Describing. I got to looking from reading. I just was doing with a picture what I've been taught to do in literature. I was accustomed to taking a critical view. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. <laughs> um, so we've already talked a little bit about where this conversation might go, but I thought an interesting question to to warm up with or to start thinking with is we're in a moment in which people are often talking about how there are seismic changes happening, there are major shifts, um, and yet some people have also said that that they felt like all of this already happened in the 70s and 80s with the culture wars. And, and so I would love to hear your perspective of what it was like to be at UC Berkeley in the 1970s and, and how you saw art history as a discipline developing and changing then. Well, look, I want to go back further than that because okay. don't forget I arrived at Berkeley in 1962. Right. So my intense times in Berkeley were in those tumultuous 60s and into the 70s, right? And of course on, but, and I began studying art history and that's of course for me the most important thing. At the end of the 50s, actually, as my senior year at Radcliffe in 1957, and from then on through graduate school, my experience was of a field largely populated by professors who had emigrated. Mm -hmm. So I was moving into a field that was not so much Americans as Europeans who had had to flee. And that, so I came into the field and I had a Russian father and had gone to Europe a lot as a child and taken to Europe. So that suited me just fine. In other words, I felt I was home. Yeah. I didn't think of myself as a woman among men. Though, of course, I indeed was that. I thought of myself as a person among all these people or many people who really knew from a European point of view a lot about European art, culture, history, society. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yeah. and my, my um, I suppose looking back, though I didn't feel it then, I am by nature disputatious. <laughs> um, I might say that that might be a woman in a world where there aren't a lot of other women, but I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I just thought things are not right. And 
the first thing I thought at Harvard was people do connoisseurship, they do iconography, they do style and iconography, but a picture is all mixed up. It's neither one nor the other. Why shouldn't we mix those things together as they are mixed up in the making and viewing of art? So I immediately began to kind of press on that kind of question. And my great luck was that in my second year, I went to NYU, studied with Krautheimer, came back. And then in the spring of my return year to Harvard, that's the spring of 1959, who arrived to teach but Ernst Gombrich. And he made all the difference because he was not a normal artist. He himself was breaking with what has been done, taking in perception, visual perception, writing art and illusion. So I felt fine. I'm one of those. What was, um, yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure. So the 70s in that sense, uh, you know, yes, indeed, um, the art of describing was published in 1983, but my issues began much, much earlier before the 70s. Yeah. Was there a formative seminar that you took with Gombrich that really... Um... He taught, well, he taught a seminar on Vasari, which I then mm-hmm. learned he had been taught himself by Schlosser, Julius von Schlosser, a great right. uh, Viennese artist, when I mean, he'd been a student. Yeah. And my first article, which some people in Italian art still think is the best thing I ever wrote, was <laughs> on uh, Vasari's ecrasis in, yeah, uh, uh, in Vasari's uh, lives. And so that, and that, since I've been a textual person, so I studied literature and turned to art, yeah. it was perfect for me to get back to a text. Yeah. What, were, what, what was it about, what did you learn about looking specifically from Gombrich? What, what did, did he teach you? You know, that was not particularly, um, look, uh, looking in a sense, I got to looking from reading. And I might point yeah. out that my close compatriots close colleagues, Baxendall and Padro, were also both people trained in literature. So I didn't come to art history from art history, but from reading. So I never, I just was doing with a picture what I'd been taught to do in literature. I was accustomed to taking a critical view by criticism. I mean, literary criticism, right? So it's not so much close this or close that. It's that you just attend to the medium. Yeah. And and so what were the changes that you saw happen within the discipline of art history from the early 60s to, say, the oh, late 70s? Oh, I don't think, you know, I don't, uh, Berkeley was a relatively new, de- I mean, it wasn't a new department, but it wasn't Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, or Wellesley, yeah. or Vassar, right? So mm-hmm. it had no great history. Yeah. And it was actually started by Walter Horn, who was a, not Jewish, but a German who had fled yeah. and who had studied in Hamburg, New Warburg, and uh, who worked on medieval uh, secular architecture. So that had nothing to do with me. And yeah. I just got there and tried to find my way. We, uh, what can I say? In the 60s, I can't think, I mean, I was just sort of going my merry way, trying to figure things out. I mean, you know, I can't remember. I'm a loner. So I don't really, I did in the end, behind the scenes, because I was never chair, I assemble what was a great, great department at Berkeley in the 80s. That was Baxendall and Tim Clark and myself. And it was just super duper. Not that we all got along, but uh, for the students, it was wonderful. The graduate students, it was wonderful. But I wasn't aware. I mean, a lot of that things that were going on were 
in a sense, I mean, there were there were great people with me at Berkeley, as as, as I've said many many times. Edith Kramer became head of the Pacific Film Archives. Betsy yeah. Baker, who became editor of uh, and and Henry Gelseller. I mean, we we were just and we just were ourselves. Yeah. We weren't a movement. <laughs> so movement really wasn't it. Movement is a way of thinking later on. That yeah, was course. simply not. Uh, uh, that was Now, it's true in 77, I got together one of many sessions. I'm amazed when I look back because I forget about these. And I did it partly preparing for you because I don't remember all these things. But 1971 at the CAA, the need for new directions. There I am. Yeah. Who comes on to my, and it's about criticism. When I look back, I think criticism is that really was I interested in because that changed, but yeah. that was brought in from literature. Yeah, of course. And so, so looking was looking was just what I did. I never thought you could do anything else. It's yeah. not something I discovered. It was what I'd really been trained to from reading intensely literary texts. Yeah. And, and I will, you know, I will say that, that the art of describing, which to this day remains, I think, not only one of the most fundamental texts in early modern studies, but I think art history overall, um, it is a book that comes from close looking, but I have found that that's not always what people understand about it. What? No, no what wait, your... I wouldn't, close looking is not what I, I mean, right. sure is looking. One of the reasons I'm a little uncomfortable with that is I'm very wary, unlike some other art historians, uh, of writing about what I see. Look, right. look, look, look. I don't like that. I don't like to tell people how to look. I like to get them set up so they can look on their own. So my writing is really setting a stage mm-hmm. or giving a frame for getting to looking. Mm-hmm. And I would say what that book really is about art. What yeah. people did not realize when I say the art of describing, I'm not talking about realism. I'm talking about it as an artifice, as an mm-hmm. art. And yeah. so the book is really establishing what art is. It's as much that, I would say, Caroline, mm-hmm. as it is about looking. Of course it's looking. Yeah. And I would say I never start any project without a question about something seen. But mm-hmm. then I don't go on and on and on and on about what I'm seeing. I go on and on and on about really how do you situate that scene? Yeah. What is, how is it constituted? How did the artists, why were they making an art like that? In fact, the art of describing is about seeing as knowing what the Dutch thought was you knew the world through seeing. And that has been largely lost in thinking about the book. In other words, people take off on a sort of, PC questions, colonialism or something. I'm not interested in that. As far as I was concerned, that was not the point. They thought they could understand the world through looking. And that's deep in our culture. But in Holland, it was central to the making of pictures. Yeah. And so what happened then in in the early 90s at at Berkeley that, that made you decide to leave? Oh, no, no, wait. I mean, wait a minute. We're talking the 80s, right? The 80s, Basically. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I retired in 94. I, I left because essentially 
I was one of those lucky people at just the age, I was 58 then, uh-huh. uh, when I was bought out because they had a financial crisis, as right. institutions have again and again for different reasons, and yeah. they decided to pay off top professors. Yeah. And I just made it under six months or something of age to do it. <laughs> and I had personal reasons for doing it. And also, I suppose things had changed, by which I mean, um, I'd written The Art of Describing. I'd written the Rembrandt book. Yeah. I was working, actually beginning to work on Tiepolo with Baxendahl, who'd mm-hmm. arrived at Come to Berkeley to Teach. And the students were asking different questions. A major uh, question on their mind were questions of gender. Uh-huh. Now, curiously, the art of describing, because of Francesca de Holland saying that Dutch Northern art is an art for women, I sort of came in to the women's movement. I was one of the founders of founding members of the Women's Caucus for Art, right? But the curious thing about Dutch art is though it was said to be an art for women. In other words, you cry, you look at it. It's not manly like Mm -hmm. Italian art, which was Mm -hmm. the notion of an Italian writing about it, but it was mostly made by men. So, okay, it doesn't, in other words, it's not an art made by women. It's an art made by men who however, were discriminated by the Italians as being women. Anyhow, everybody wanted to talk about gender. And I, it really is not a central question to me. I think it can be interesting, but I don't think any, everything can be seen through that question, yeah. basically. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so there was a kind of push among those students, many of whom are still very close friends, uh, to ask those questions. And when we taught uh, the pro seminar, there was an introductory seminar for graduate students. And when you taught it, um, this is what was pressing them. And it really didn't press me. The other thing that happened is what I loved to teach above all was the huge introductory course from Jada to Picasso. Now oh. that became under question, right? right? How can we teach European art? Now I would say to that, any field has to have a constraint. And that the constraint of the limit, but also, let's say, the functional constraint of art history was greater Western art. And it was a great feel when I went to it. It was psychological. It was anthropological. It was philosophical. It was aesthetic. It was a great intellectual field, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it had to have limits. In other words, there's physics and there's chaos physics. Chaos physics is not physics. Physics to be physics has to put limits. I think any field of study needs limits. That's one of my questions with global art history. I don't know what the limits are. What is the structure of that field? It's just kind of wandering all over the place and noticing things or, you know, and saying they ought to be noticed. Well, that's not thinking. That's just looking around. And we had a field, but it became understandably under pressure. Why were we privileging Europe? Right. And uh, so that course, which I love teaching because I could teach from Java to Picasso and beyond, I could teach all kinds of things that were not my great specialty. And that was a huge pleasure. And you had 300 kids and they were not all art historians. And by the way, my notion at the time was if you want to study art history, do not major in art history. Be broad, do anthropology, do psycho, do anything or be an artist. I had yeah. artists who were graduate students of mine who become prominent art historians who were not art historians. Anyhow, so that went down the tubes. We invented a new course, but that was so things were changing. 
Yeah. So I was just going off. I don't think there is a field now. You see, the point is, any field is a construct. And if you live long enough, if you look back over academia, it keeps changing. Yeah. Right? And I think our history, as I was drawn to it and studied it and 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 um lived well in it it's finished it's not a disaster the art is still there so yeah it's okay why i mean do you you think that the field is finished because there are all these um i don't think it's going to be the field it was i don't think it because first of all i don't think it on um, look i only know i know europe a bit and I think it's more as it was in Europe than it is in America. The yeah. right thing about America, and that, of course, can bring us to Walker Evans, that's my first <laughs> American artist, is that America is America. And why should everybody in America be busy not studying American art? When I was in art history, everybody thought, American art? Who can do that? I mean, we did hire people in American art, somebody in American art who's still there at Berkeley, in fact. But it was frowned on and looked down on, and that's ridiculous. Right. So there has that's a good change. But I think it's quite true in America, why don't people do something different? And so now just speaking about America, I do think the idea that we were there in Berkeley and I was concentrating on Dutch uh, Rubens, Vermeer, Rembrandt, you might say, well, why not, you know, study someone who's doing something out there. I don't know, Ernst, Elmer Bischoff or, or David Park or somebody. Fine. So I think that that is a problem for America. And I think that, I mean, and in a curious way, my picking up on Evans was great, a great joy for me because finally, well into this, I myself am turning to America, but notably not a painter, but a photographer. Right. I think it's a good time to turn to your Walker Evans book, which is coming out this October um, from Princeton University Press. And I was just noticing that the title for the book, Walker Evans, Starting from Scratch, is that right? Did Mm -hmm. I just quote it correctly? In some ways, it seems like that also refers to a little bit for you, perhaps, kind of returning to art history and thinking about um, what art history looks like from America and, and from the medium of photography. No, I didn't think of it that way. No. Okay. I, I thought, no, no, no. See, what's interesting in preparing for speaking to you, yeah. you are coming from outside me. And I would say, and looking, and you look at me in, ter- in my career. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know my career, uh, I'm happy to say, which is useful as we talk, you know about it. And, and you're thinking, but when I work, I don't work in my career, I just work. Yeah. So in that sense, starting from scratch for me meant uh, doing partly the title refers to, as I say in the book, and you've read that, uh, it refers to photography, which just starts from nothing. I mean, there's no tradition as there is in painting. My great medium is painting and photography is not my great medium. So for me, I and I've not changed. I still think painting is a greater medium than photography, no question. Okay. <laughs> but you start from scratch as a photographer, and that's what he did. No training, nothing. There were there were schools, but he didn't go to school. He just took a camera, went out and did it. But it also for me, it's also an American story, since I think the reason photography could get going so well, so quickly, immediately in America, was that you didn't need to have a great pictorial tradition. And the painters had a more difficult time. Hopper went to Paris. 
He tried to paint the case. I think they're marvelous paintings, but a very good American painter once said to me, oh, they're so European. His right. early, early work, his work from 1906 or so when he went to Paris. And then he became an American. But I think Evans is a much better artist, uh, a much greater artist than, uh, than uh, Hopper. For me, there's no comparison, although they're often compared. And I think because he didn't have that weight of that tradition behind him. And then finally, of course, the book is me starting from scratch. Now, you looking at me coming to this immediately can see, and you're not wrong at all, you're quite right, connections between my sense of photography and, let's say, the sense I conveyed of looking at Dutch art. Mm -hmm. You can see there's a connection, right? But I didn't work out of that sense. Of course. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, I did, I was struck in reading the book that there were um, themes that carried through from the art of describing to this book, such as an attention to surface, uh, an, attention, an attention to description as, as a mode of yeah. knowledge and a no, mode of making, um, right. and also an, an attention to process and the ways in which knowledge is formed through process, and, and also the ways in exactly. which you were really thinking about um, Walker Evans' position as a maker and the ways in which he wanted to occlude his presence within his works and, and perhaps mm -hmm. the world like a surface yep. that had no... Um, yeah, that suited me. No, you're absolutely mediation. right. And when you point that, I will say, yes, there are, <laughs> in fact, as I mentioned to you, somebody, uh, a rather well-known uh, woman journalist who wrote a book on photography, when I said to her that I was publishing on Walker Evans, she said, you on Walker Evans? And I immediately said, well, there's the art of describing. So <laughs> Quickly, I make the connection myself. But what's interesting, and you brought that from, I've been thinking about it since we began to talk about this formal conversation. It never occurred to me deeply in writing. There is, however, a footnote, a relevant footnote in the art of describing, and I really looked it up, and it is, in fact, uh, footnote 37 on chapter two, which became rather well known because I bring up the question of what about the relationship, which was always claimed, Kenneth Clark claimed it, other yeah. between Dutch art and photography. Yeah. yeah and I don't yeah. know if you remember that from the book or anybody remembers it from the book, but it at that point, in other words, when I was writing the book, yeah. photography had to be on my mind. It is striking to me. I mean, the the figure of the camera obscura and photography has haunted the history of Dutch painting and particularly mm -hmm. Vermeer. Um, yep. so, so there is, I, I would be curious to know, A, where, how that literature was for you in that period? No, that's a, that literature is a total mess. Yeah. And that literature is a mess because people think he's copying camera obscura and they right. make a big fuss about this. And it's just stupid. The book <laughs> is about the art of the fiction, the fiction. Exactly. And yeah. I, and so, and that erases the fiction. Yeah. Right. That ignores the fact that this is all a fiction. So I think, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, after all, um, Walker Evans' 8x10 camera was a, was a camera. And that seem, it seems to me sometimes when he photographs, I say this in the book, a marvelous, famous photograph of Bell Grove of a room in a vacated um, plantation in the South, mm -hmm. he is matching that room to his camera. So he sees that his camera is like a room. And that, in fact, is a much more powerful relationship than um, Vermeer uh, with an image on a screen in front of him. 
that has never really grabbed me. And I've not found that literature um, extremely helpful. Yeah, I agree. So how do you think that <laughs> how do you think that spending a career um, looking very closely and thinking a lot about painting gives you a particular perspective? Or what do you think that brought to your project on on photography? Difference. <laughs> I mean, in other words, I'm dealing with something totally different. Yeah. And I and but I do not hide the fact in the book. And in that sense, the book is continuous with Alpers on painting because I'm curious about those differences. For example, I'm interested in making the making of Rubens was the title of a book right. or Rembrandt's studio yeah. uh, enterprise and studio. I'm again, perhaps more than I did. Although there is a chapter, there are chapters in the, in the art describing nobody talks about um, with a sincere hand and a, a faithful, fruitful eye is yeah, a chapter on the craft of representation, right? Yeah. And nobody ever, they get into mapping because that's easily movable, but yeah. there are other things going on. Anyhow, what was I just going to say? Um, so I think that, that the problem with the photograph is what's the making? <laughs> you see, a painter has a piece of paper, he has a canvas, yeah. she, he or she gets to work. But the photograph isn't like that. And so the whole notion of making is very, is newly problematic. And also, I mean, you might say, and you're asking me about suggesting the relevance of the artist arriving, which is kind of new to me, but not so new, mm -hmm. that in a sense, a photographer like Evans is a very simplified version of Dutch painting. He just goes out there and looks at the world. And yeah. I care a lot about art looking at the world. I mean, I matter. I care about Cezanne. I care about Bonnard. Yeah. I care about Manet. And now we've got a kind of ground level um, uh, example of that in a photographer like Evans. He's not a studio photographer, even though he has a camera. He's not a studio photographer. He's out there looking. And of course, his big point is I have an eye. And of course, yeah. that grabbed me as a chapter on that. That grabbed me immediately. Yeah. Well, I also thought what was interesting about his practice, which I didn't know, I'm not a scholar of photography, um, is that, as you point out, editing is also a large point of part of his practice. Right. And also, right. he, he wasn't tied to having one iconic image. Exactly. That he, right. he and he didn't care. And the other... Exactly, yeah. exactly. He he accepted, I would say, the multiplicity of photographs. You've mm -hmm. got a whole strip of them. He didn't go in like um, the blind man or uh, steerage, famous, famous, iconic photographs we know. There are a couple that Allie Mae Burroughs one, the woman down in Hale County, has become iconic, but he made four of those. Right. <laughs> and they're all hanging around. He didn't go in for one photograph. He accepted the fact, that's how I argue, that cameras make many of them. And he also didn't care about fine images. He's not Irving Penn. He's not any of these photographers who make a fuss. He cared about editing. He cared about, and he would edit them in different ways. And on different times, he would put his favorite um, site was a book, basically. Not a wall, but a book. That's what he wanted was books, books, books. Not a museum, certainly not a museum, and not a collector's wall, but mostly the page of the book is how he saw his photographs, where he saw them going. And he would 
put different ones out at different times, but he cared not about the print, but about the picture. Right. So, and this annoys many, it annoys my photography friends because I don't know anybody who feels that way. He really didn't care. And therefore, the market for fine prints, if we go into the marketing after his life, there's very little of that. He, he, didn't, he didn't benefit from that, but he also wasn't crippled by it, if I can put it that way. And the marketing for vintage prints, which is a great thing in photography, it mm-hmm. was made back then. He made it in a way Evans didn't, didn't play that game. And that's very, very annoying to collectors <laughs> because that's what makes a print valuable. Of course. And so one other thing that you've mentioned about this project that's important to you and that's come out a bit already is that it's also not a project about a European or, or mm-hmm. well, the European tradition is part of it because he spent time in France and, and it can't not be. He loved France. Right? And he loved right. France. Um, he is an American. And, and so I'm curious what, what that means for you when you when you think about this project is based in in America oh. and and also I mean you have a chapter on on the South and and his relationship mm-hmm. with minstrelsy which I found very interesting. Right. Um, right. So yeah, yeah, I would just love like to hear you talk about more. Oh, and I mean, it's right up in your relationship to America. It's right too. up to our time. I mean, look, yeah. I'm, as I said, I went into a field which shared my European background with me. So I felt very mm-hmm. comfortable since I knew Europe well as a kid and I've yeah. gone there. I, I live three months a year when I can get there now in France, different right. months, not in a row, but different ones. At any rate, but um, he spoke of himself as an outsider uh, who said he had a great love for America, but he was an outsider and he saw it as an outsider. He was not like so many photographers. And look, the other great road photographer, Robert Frank, was another outsider. Yeah. I mean, in other words, and what he did was certainly not done by an American, but there are many very American photographers. And in that way, Evans wasn't. And as I found that, I could share that a lot. Now, um, so he, he, and he hated it. I mean, he, after all, it's so relevant right now in so many ways. He's living through the depression. He hates the bankers. He delights and he speaks on the last lecture he gave the night before he went back from Radcliffe where he gave it back to drop dead in New Haven where he was living. Um, he went right back to how much he hated and delight, hated America and delighted it when bankers jumped out of windows to their death. He had a lot of anger about America and I, and I feel ambivalent about America too. So I, I sympathize with that. That fit my view. On the other hand, he was absorbed by it aside from his photographs, a few in France when he was there, 26, 27, and that marvelous three weeks he spent in 1933 in Cuba, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a warm up for the South because there he saw people of all different kinds of colors under Machado, a dictator who was being overthrown. And he had very few illusions that that overthrow would get anything for the people, which in fact it didn't. And maybe it finally did under Castro, but it didn't then. And he was, he was in that case, uh, it fit him also because America actually had its finger in the pie. So he was as always with Cuba. So he was um, sympathetic (laughs) to the Cubans. But what he shows us, he never shows us, he he gives you the information 
on which reform might act. That's what he gives you. And the same in the American South. And I suppose the big turn my book makes about him in the South, he is a great artist of the Great Depression. That's what we say. But the point in my book is it's not the Great Depression. It's the long Civil War. He goes down there and he sees Negroes, as he called them, as much as he sees whites. When they do, uh, he and Aichi do Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, they are ordered by fortune to do a white tenant farmer family. So it was really the first time you get a series of photographs that's in the first edition by Evans, which are all white. That was not his South. And his South includes Confederate statuary. They are in the park in Vicksburg, so they will not be turned down because it is a national military park like Gettysburg. There's one in Vicksburg, and those are protected. I mean, nobody's going to go in. I mean, maybe they'll go in there and turn them over, but actually they're part of of America. So they're there, although many of them were put up very, very late, and they were certainly part of the sort of the continuing Confederate feeling. But he had a strong feeling for that. And then there are those, he's the only one who was a leading photographer who photographed the show bills for the minstrel shows, which were still popping along in the 30s. And of course, 1936, Fred Astaire um, uh, dances blackface. And that's in my book too, because I think they're both men of style. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, And I also have Bob Dylan in there because Dylan helped me understand coming from music as he did so dependent of course so drawing on a mixture of traditions of music in which black music was central and minstrelsy was central right and so it i think it's wonderful to study at this time i think there might be annoyance at evans photographing um blackface show bills Mm -hmm. but the fact is He's doing it not to say this is good or bad, but say this this is part of our culture. This is yeah. it. Well, and it's interesting to me. I mean, I think you're right to trace it back to the long civil war and, and that's the point oh, you give. Yeah. But but I wonder if I mean I think some people would argue and and I don't think this is necessarily I mean I get I think some people would argue that this the Civil War why it might be the moment to trace it back to it is it's about a, the enduring relationship between America and slavery that has yet to be reconciled. Oh sure, but oh yeah. sure, oh sure, but but um, the long Civil War uh, we can say that, but now that we're putting it, you know, as as. Baldwin said to Robert Kennedy, we were here before you were here. I mean, yeah. that's absolutely true. But I think that uh, the Civil War is a kind of convenient way to put it. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. because we assume we know we're now freshly, newly made aware it's not so, we assume the Civil War kind of settled things. <laughs> and it didn't, right? Yeah. And so that's what I'm referring. He saw it didn't. He was down there. And when he's asked by Bill Ferris, who's still alive actually, living down there, and who called it Yale, when he's asked, interviewed by him and asked by him in the 70s, you know, what interested you about the South? Evan says they used to call it the Civil War. So he thought of it uh, that way. So I'm really, after all, you're absolutely right in your correction that it's a longer story, but he would have thought of it that way. Yeah, that makes sense. 
That makes sense. And so you bring it, you bring in that this book has some wonderful references and Fred Astaire and Bob Dylan are in that chapter. And, and I, I, I really appreciate, I especially appreciated the discussion of Bob Dylan. Um, but you that also- That was quite new to me, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I really got onto him for this purpose <laughs> because <laughs> I suddenly realized, no, it's remarkable. And, and because I needed some, some, um, protection or testimony that someone looking as Evans did and caring as he did and b without um, without being a, a, a fighter or revolutionary had some status and Bob Dylan gives it that. But uh, but poetry is also a, another part of of this story that you tell and you mm -hmm. dedicate the book mm -hmm. to Adrian Rich and Elizabeth Bishop, understandably, who's often thought of as, as a poet in, in this descriptive uh, history right. and not the confessional right. history right. Um, you talk about quite a bit. And so and as someone who, who comes from literary studies and obviously has a long relationship with poetry, um, yet I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first book in which you you actively read images in relationship to poetry. Is that correct? Or am I Gosh, you know, I can't, I can't, can I remember? <laughs> I can't, I really, I can't remember. Maybe it is, but I mean, partly I'm such, uh, the argument of the book is sort of, it's not sort of, it is to present or one of the arguments, Evans as a great American artist. And it yeah. seems to me that, even though he obviously did not read Bishop, right? right? And he knew that Williams had, he, I mean, he met Edmund, Edmund Wilson comes in and he did meet Edmund Wilson and Hart Crane, of course, one of his photographs was used for the bridge. So he knew, he knew Hart Crane, that he actually knew Hart Crane. But uh, I wanted to situate him in a world of like makers. That's why I brought poetry in. And in one particular case, of course, that wonderful, wonderful passages by um, Bishop, prose passages on Darwin yeah. were a way yeah, to get fun. at these lone seekers, <laughs> which I have much sympathy with. She was, Darwin was, and Evans was. So it was another way to kind of place him yeah right? I mean, yeah I mean one of the things that's coming out is is both you yourself feeling as an outsider in the US but I think also you've mentioned in, in some of our previous conversations uh, uh, turning away from academia and, and seeking kind of a, mm -hmm. a different life in New York mm -hmm. but so I assume from that, that that you yourself also in turn feel a bit of an outsider within academia which is um, well although you've so been so formative for the discipline, so I don't think- Well, look, my fair, dear, but... I mean, I'm a professor's daughter, right? So I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, yeah. and I spent my first 25, I went to college there, went to graduate students there, then I spent my next 25 years in, I'm putting this very loosely, sort of in Berkeley. So yeah. I had had my whole life in academic communities. And to me, that was the world. I mean, yeah. it was natural for me to become, when I was first became a full professor at Berkeley, if you can believe it, I believe there were three women among 1,500 full professors. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't fighting about that, maybe to my fault. It is my, I never thought of it. I thought I was a person. Before, I, I still feel I'm more a person than a woman. I'm as much a person as a woman. Yeah. I feel that deeply. I, I and, and, uh, and at, so uh, I was just, 
I, I, in other words, I was outside partly because I was one of these few women, um, and there were all these guys, and I was just not part of that. But I never dwelled on it. That was just the situation. And then for personal reasons, partly, when I wanted to be nearer to Europe, one of the problems with Berkeley is how far it is from Europe if Europe is where your focus is. Yeah. And my parents were then living in New York and were old. So I decided to move as it were back to New York, which is what I did. And I did it a bit recklessly. I didn't really think, oh, my God, I'm getting away from the academy. But when I got here, um, I found that I was no longer really, in a way, functionally part of that world. But you see, I retired, unlike so many of the younger people, younger than I, my students, my goodness, they teach till they're 70 or 75 or something. Yeah. And I was out at 58. So that what it showed that, and I was a wonderful teacher. I love teaching and I love my students, but I really wanted to move on in some way. Yeah. I didn't need it. People say to me, oh, I couldn't be without my students. Well, I could. Yeah. Not without art. So I went on. So um, I suppose I always felt closer to art than to the academy. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? That's what I would say to you. That's why when I say to you, if our history is no longer engaged with that tradition of art, which has meant so much for so many and so much for me, the art is still there. It's not the end of the art. Yeah. And so it does, it's not terrible. <laughs> so that does get me to I have to say when I was I, I was doing some research for our interview, I, I came across your works in the collection of I can't remember, is it MoMA or Whitney that acquired MoMA, them? MoMA, yeah. Those, MoMA those, acquired them. Yes, those prints that we made, painting then for now. Yeah. Yes, Barney Kulak, a photographer, and a James Hyde, a painter, and I got together and photographed those, uh, other people have photographed them too, uh, those great uh, canvases of Cepelo that are up the top of the staircase in that first room, and they remain there all the time, of the Met. And we did those, and it was fascinating because it was a collaboration between a painter and a photographer and an art historian. So that was yeah. the fun of it, right? But I would say to you, really, and, and they're good, and they're damn good prints. <laughs> I mean, they're wonderful prints, yeah. and people bought them, and they were very successful. And, uh, and MoMA then bought a good part of that, um, of that. So it was Peter Galassi, who's now retired from MoMA. He bought a good number of them from MoMA. So they're in MoMA, right? Yeah. But I would say, looking back, what really, and I say that, I think, in the acknowledgement section of this book, that was a practical experience for me with photography. I'm a very, I'm a good normal photographer. And although I did lots of photographs of kids and such, really, it's not family stuff. It's making a good image that matters to me. Yeah. And I've done that my whole life. My father did it too. He had a wonderful camera and he came out of a German tradition. So he did it. And he was a very good photographer. Yeah. So I was. So I'd done that. Then I learned about it through this collusion, this collaboration. And so in fact, that was there for me when and I began to know other photographers through the this artist and this photographer and I sort of got drawn into that world so partly what that experience I, I've talked about that in that that interview with Stephen Melville and and he was pressing me on how meaningful all of that was to me and frankly it's very difficult for me to quite explain 
the meaning of making those images, but the practice of making them was central because it gave me a kind of experience being occupied with making photographic prints, being photographic, literal prints. And so did you come to the Walker Evans project from making those prints then, or were you already working on Walker Evans? No, I came from the world of photography because I began to know photographers and I began to look at photography. And at one point I thought of doing a book talking to photographers about photography today, because as you get a sense, I mean, talk about my view of art history, you're going to begin to think it's Svetlana Alpers. I'm a bit dismayed by a lot of photography today. I think photography is not painting. I think it's distinct. And I think when it tries to act like painting, <laughs> it just falls flat in its face. It can't begin to measure up to painting. So I think it's in a kind of, it's in a bit of a muddle at this point, the making of photography in a way. And so, I mean, I'm sounding like I sound about art history. Right? <laughs> Maybe it's my age or it. So, I then, having thought I would interview, I'm an old friend of Jan Dibbets because actually Jan Dibbets turns up in the art of describing because Jan Dibbets, the Dutch photographer, mm -hmm, did images which are very, you know, they're, they're like, they're the art, they're, they're Dutch yeah. images, like yeah. art of describing. I'm a friend of Jan's. And, and so I know various photographers and I thought, well, I'll interview um, these people and put together interviews, but then... I slowly drifted and ended up with Walker Evans. I can't quite describe how it happened, but it happened. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Svetlana. Is, is there anything oh. else that you'd like to say or address? I find that sometimes people want to make a final. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, no, yeah. there are little details because you pushed me, you know, to the art of describing. And, you know, there's a chapter of the art, another connection to Evans, a chapter of the art of describing called Looking at Words. Nobody ever yeah. talks about that, but there is. It's about words painted into Dutch paintings and also letters, words that people, that we don't see that they're reading. And of course, Evans adored type. I mean, that was central to him. So uh, that's another, oddly, it's another connection, which actually you're asking me that they're pushed me um, <laughs> to say that. It sounds like from your... I, um, I'm, I'm, do you find that the main chapter that people have taken from the art of describing is your chapter on mapping and cartography? And then I suppose that's the one. Uh, what do you think? Come on, you're out there and I'm here, <laughs> so I can't tell you. Um, that's hard. It's true. I, I do often. You you are always cited when questions of of early modern mapping. Um, yeah, because nobody had really paid attention before. I mean, I saw really. You know, I was in in the British Museum. I was running all over the place. Wisconsin. Yeah. I was in, in Chicago. I was all over the place with maps, and somehow people hadn't paid attention. So, well, you see, I'm much less interested in maps. And uh, in in the PC way of the way they press people or unfair to people, I'm interested in them as images. Yeah. And that's, again, why Evans is so good, because uh, he um, is uh, he's not um, he, he's not he has no he doesn't let his social conscience show. He was an angry man, but his photographs are not telling you what to do. They're showing you how it is. I'll end with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, think I, I, don't, I don't think we can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Very, and thank you. It's very good. Thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, thank you, Svetlana. 
Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. For more information on this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. This program was produced by Caitlin Woolsey, Samantha Page, and myself, with music by Light Chaser, editing by John Boutine, and additional support provided by Gabrielle Almeida Baroja, Alice Matthews, and Yubai Sheen.